Hello and welcome to another episode of Mistakes Were Made with me, Alex Steger. And me, Frank Talbot. Frank, thank you for joining me today. For the listeners, Frank is actually on uh, on holiday, vacation, depending uh, where you are, and has, has kindly taken a break uh, to, to record this. So, so thanks, Frank. And can you maybe just, you know, set the scene for the listeners? Where, where are you? So yeah, I've, I've taken a bit of R&R by the beach in, uh, in the United Kingdom uh, and uh, the weather's been immaculate. Yesterday we had gale force winds. Today we've had hailstones the size of golf balls. It's been entertaining. I mean, the British, the British summer slash spring consistently delivers. I was going to say, it sounds, like a, it sounds like a classic British summer holiday by the beach. So, you know, well, still, I'm, I am grateful that you took a break from, from the bad weather for this. Um, the other person who joined us for this podcast was Jean Goldman, who is the CIO and Director of Research at Cetera, which is a large broker-dealer here in the US of A. Um, it was great to have Jean on the pod, I thought, Frank. You know, obviously I'm not going to... I'm never going to open these intros with... It was terrible to have them on the pod, but uh, I did. I really enjoyed our, our chat with Jean. Uh, yeah, I, I like Jean as well. Very experienced analyst. He's He's been through it all. He references some things from yesteryear and uh, the kind of cyclicality of, of his job in many ways. But he's used to grilling, fundamentally, his job, the best and brightest portfolio managers in the US. And he's less about mistakes he's made, if I'm being honest, and more about mistakes that other people could avoid making. Uh, and he's full of gems about that. Yeah, I think that's true. Sorry for a little bit of context there. You know, Gene's job essentially, much like Chris Ralph's in the previous episode. Uh, you know, Gene is a a fund selector, uh, and you know, essentially his job is to interview portfolio managers to decide whether they'll get backing from him or not. Um, I thought a couple of the most interesting things that he talked about was, um, you know, that that kind of idea of when a manager leaves, you know, do you drop the fund? I think there's a lot of uh, received wisdom. That, that is the right thing to do and Gene perhaps suggested it's not so I thought that was a, a particularly interesting point and I thought also his anecdote uh, about visiting a firm in Philadelphia where maybe no one actually worked uh, and how he managed to avoid a big slip up there uh, was particularly illuminating anyway Gene paints the picture a lot better than I've just done so um, without further ado here is our interview with Gene Goldman We'll start as we as we always do with this by asking you a little bit about maybe one or two of the investment mistakes that stand out in your your life or career and what you might have learned from them. Now I know maybe you haven't made any, but are you know are there perhaps any that, that spring to mind that, that you could share with us today? Oh, mistakes, mistakes, mistakes. Yeah, we've all made mistakes, and that and that's how you learn. You know, mistakes are what you know what you learn from to grow as an analyst, grow as an investor. So. For me, if I look at a mistake, the, the two mistakes that stick out to me the most, number one was back in 2012, the summer of 2012. I had just started at Cetera probably about a year earlier. And one of the funds that was on our recommended list was a Putnam, at that point it was called the Putnam Equity Income Fund. Um, today it's called Putnam Large Cap Value. And the lead portfolio manager, Bart Gear, you know, left to go to another firm. And he was, and he was replaced by Darren Yarrow, um, you know, as a new portfolio manager and you know obviously under the mantra hey the lead portfolio manager leaves you do your investigation you do your analysis and of course you know most likely you end up taking the fund off the recommended list just because you know the, the key alpha driver was the person who left you know unfortunately as time progressed you know we I analyzed my team and I we analyzed we analyzed 
And the new portfolio manager, Darren Yarrow, had done an even better job when we compared returns of Bart Gear, who had left versus Darren taking over the portfolio. But we kind of said, well, it's gonna, it's not gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna revert back to the mean. It's not gonna work. It's not gonna, it's not gonna keep that way. And we kept analyzing, and basically this mistake became worse and worse because the new portfolio manager, Darren Yarrow, did an amazing, phenomenal job. And it's just, that's just a, a testament to the process and the philosophy of the fund. So, long story short, you know. Last year, 2020, we ended up recommending the fund again, the Putnam Large Cap Value Fund. So again, learning from the mistake is that, you know, don't just follow your old, hey, if the portfolio manager leaves, you fire the fund. You know, you definitely need to spend a lot more time analyzing and reviewing, understanding every aspect of a, of a change and how that impacts the fund. So just, so just to be clear, so you, you, you saw the change and you, and you, dro- and you dropped the fund after, after the manager left, but you just, so the analysis you were doing was once, once Bart had gone, you just kept looking at it to check to check whether you had made the right decision or not. And every time you checked, it it appeared as if your decision got worse and worse. Essentially, exactly, exactly. Thanks, thanks for putting it so eloquently for me. Fine, no, that's it. But I'm interested that you bothered. Well, I mean, obviously, one sort of checks back in on decisions you've made, but you kept what you sort of kept looking what every year just to sort of just to sort of sense check it. Do you do that with every decision? you sort of definitely because you, you make a lot of decisions in, in the investment world and you're making recommendations for your clients for your advisors and you always have to look back to say did i make a good decision or a bad decision and looking at to review the data looking to review what's been done that you always need to do that so i mean but sure oh sorry frank you're going to come in there well it's just uh, so, so the, the fear of missing out uh, incidentally how how's he done since you added him back done very very well i mean reverted to the mean it's been terrible (laughs) (laughs) no since we've added the portfolio back done a great job and you know it what's more importantly it was added it's it's our now it's our highest conviction pick within the large cap value asset class which is also being used in all of our discretionary portfolios so again everyone loves value right now as well so that's good exactly what did you add back in what at the start of the year the the sort of the move back to value were you ahead of that no we ended in september of last year so september 30th so we, from our portfolio positioning, you know, we were a little cautious going into 2020, and then we really took a risk on after the big sharp decline in February and March. And then, you know, later in the year, as we started to see the reopening trade start to work, we started to really boost our value versus growth exposure and also increase our small cap. So we are full all aboard the, the, re, the reopening trade right now. And you got in, as you say, what you got in to some of those trades pre pre-vaccine announcement kind of pre-october when 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 they started to to explode or was that kind of around the time you also made those moves yeah we made we made the moves it was definitely pre-vaccine it was really because the data was just starting to get better especially you know obviously the vaccine in november when that was announced was a great was great news but for us the dev, the data the evidence that we were seeing in advance was sort of the the survey data from you know the pmi data was improving also just simply you look at the um stimulus you know right now there's about if you add up all the stimulus that's in the economy that's that that's been allocated that's been earmarked it's about 12 trillion dollars it's about 60 percent of gdp and only that about half of that is being has actually been spent or distributed so with us in mind with that in mind you know that's just a big boost to the overall economy so that's part of the reason why we we started to you know tip or dip our feet more into value more in small cap more in sort of those those higher beta reflation trades Interested, Gene, as well. Obviously, you've had a, had a long career as a as a uh, manager, researcher, you know, fund analyst. I'm not quite sure 
what the nomenclature that you use for that. But um, interested to know in, in your time and you know you manage a team as well of, of analysts and things. What are some of the most common mistakes that you see fund analysts make? So I think you touched on one already, which was you know this idea of the manager goes right, we're, we're, you know the fund goes under review and we'll probably fire them. And I think maybe the understanding around that has changed a little bit over the years but 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 is that you know that might be one of the most common mistakes analysts make are there others that sort of spring to your mind that you see either your team or other people in the industry sort of continually make yeah that makes sense. maybe i can answer in two ways i'm you know you know alex and frank you guys have known me for a long time i'm a very optimistic person so i'd love to take talk about the mistakes that i've seen analysts make but at the same time talk about things to be more a more successful analyst too yeah, of course. Yeah. So the common mistakes, you know, yeah, some of the mistakes I've seen a lot out there, A, you know, you know, number one, don't rely on so much on past results. You know, a lot of times, you know, every fund selection process starts with a quantitative screening and then a qualitative perspective. We tend to rely too much on backward looking data. Again, you know, data can help you, can help, you know, reduce your, your initial universe, of course. And there's so many ways you can slice and dice data, but don't rely too much on data because sometimes use common sense, use what makes more sense. Number two is don't be so style focused. You know, sometimes a team, an analyst will look for a, a small cap value screen and screen on small cap value names. And it's okay if a small cap value fund maybe dips into small blend or small growth or goes into mid cap value. That's okay. You know, style kind of style flexibility. I'm a big fan of, you know, I use the, the example, let's say you're looking for a small cap value fund and you know, you said to the portfolio manager, Hey, the Russell 2000 value can be down 20%. You knew in, a, in, the, in with a crystal ball, it's going to be down 20%, but small cap growth w- would be up 2%. So you as a portfolio manager, would you put all your money in small cap value or would you put a little bit in the small cap growth? And I think it's okay to kind of sidestep some of those areas to get more, you know, a more flexible style. So again, long story short, I love flexibility in terms of, 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 of investment processes and philosophies. Again, as long as that, um, that, that flexibility has performed well and the portfolio manager has the experience to do that. The third thing is, you know, Going back to again historically looking at data, you know I'm not a big fan when someone comes in our, into our office and says, "Hey, look at our fund. It has a five-year track record that beat the benchmark." For us, that tends to go in one year and out the other year. What we tend to focus more on is sort of calendar year returns because I think, in my opinion, every calendar year has a, a very distinct investment environment. You know, if you if you're looking at a fund that does well in a very volatile environment. Me, I would look at 2011 because volatility was big in 2011. I would look at 2020 given the amount of volatility. So I would always look based on your search in terms of, of how a fund did in a certain calendar year. Because I think, you know, I know that the number, the, the time, the amount of time that the earth revolves around the sun is not that big of a deal. But if you look historically year by year by year, each calendar year has a very defining type of environment and that should help you dictate on a go forward basis what types of funds should do well in the environment that you expect. So again, three things. Don't rely so much on past results. It's okay to choose managers with a little bit more flexible styles. And three, don't just focus on you know trailing returns. It's okay to look at calendar year returns. You, you, talk, about, you talk about fund managers coming in to, to, to see you. What mistakes have you seen them make when they pitch to you? You know, you mentioned don't major too much on our five-year track record. That's not what you want to hear. What do you What do you see a, a portfolio manager make as as an error like on a consistent basis? 
I think a lot of times a portfolio manager, I mean, many times the mistakes we've seen is that they tend to stick to a script. Like a lot of times a portfolio manager is sort of trained to communicate in a certain way, to answer this question in a certain way. And one thing that my team does, the team does a great job on, is asking a lot of questions. And we get very annoying, you know, like that, that two hour meeting becomes a five hour meeting because we're asking so many questions because what we're trying to do is, is kind of, um, get the portfolio manager to feel uncomfortable, to say, you know, because at the end of the day, we want to know how they react to an uncertain market environment. So we ask a ton and ton of questions just to get the portfolio manager off their script. You know, you know again, that's one thing mistake we've seen portfolio managers, they stick to a script and they don't deviate too much. Another mistake I've seen portfolio managers make is that they'll make a statement. They'll make a statement about something in their process and philosophy, but some of the data doesn't back it up. You know, case in point, I was on, um, I was talking to an emerging markets manager, great performance numbers, and one of his key statements was, listen, we go in and we visit every single company and we knock on the door, we're visiting, we're talking to the CFO, CEO, COO, we're talking to everyone and we're kicking the tire on, 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 the, on the company. Boots on the ground. On the ground, yeah, boots on the ground. And I, so immediately I look at their holdings and I see an Iraqi energy company. And so I'm like, okay, so how do you actually go on and you know, get your boots in the ground, kick the tires of an Iraqi energy company? And then the portfolio manager was like, well, that's an exception. And you know, the problem is, is that you start to hear more and more exceptions, then you start to question the process and is the process actually repeatable? That's a pretty punchy position. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, this is interesting actually, because I think we've spoken about this before. Um, well, your your own boots on the ground. So I think you once told us um, something to do with you. You did do some boots on the ground stuff, and it was at, at a portfolio manager shop somewhere in the in the Philadelphia area, if I have this right. But when you got there, there was like there was no one there or something. What was, can you sort of refresh my memory of of this? Yeah, it's, it's funny because we we it was a it was a large cap growth team in Philadelphia. You have a great memory, Alex. Impressive, very good memory. Um, so I have to edit a lot of these stories. So sort of you know it's it's in there somewhere. <laughs> so no, it was at, it was in Conshohocken. I visited this large growth firm, and you know again part of the on-site visit is just understanding the teams, how the dynamics, how they work together, how everyone communicates together. So you, you want to get that perception that you just can't do on a phone or you or in, I guess in today's world it's a little difficult in the Zoom world. So we went in to visit this large growth team, and I remember like asking about you know the portfolio, you know the analysts, and like oh, you know the analyst, this analyst is traveling, this analyst is gone, this analyst is there, this analyst, you know a bunch of excuses, and of course we you know that's in the back of my mind, and then we do a tour of the office, and you look at every single desk, you know there's ten desks all lined up. Every desk was perfectly positioned with a pen at, the certain, at, the, at a 45 degree angle, a piece of paper open to a certain page. It was almost like every single person, if someone had gone in with every single person's desk and made it set look like there was a, a, a larger investment team. So, and that always goes, that always goes to questions. I remember another, another um, value manager I visited in Conchalkin, it was this, this was actually the same trip, where I talked to the investment team. And you know this portfolio manager said, listen, you know, I mean, the manager said, listen, we have one of the best financial services analysts in the industry. This person has spent, you know, he was at, he was on the, on the Fed for 20 years. He worked at uh, a bank in Philadelphia for another 22 years. He worked for another mutual fund company for 14 years. He worked for, he worked for our firm for about seven years. In my mind, I'm adding up the years. I'm thinking, yeah, like, he, I'm asking, 200 years old. 
you know, obviously we can't ask about age, you know, I didn't ask age, but I said, listen, how often does this person come in the office, this great financial services analyst? Oh, well, he comes in maybe like once a month. So again, you have to, you as an analyst, you have to keep asking, asking questions because, you know, again, you can't talk about age, but you have to keep asking, asking questions because a lot of times a statement is made and always look for the evidence to justify it. Like I love, like portfolio managers, you know, when I talk to portfolio managers, I love looking at holdings of the fund and I love screening on the smallest position. So I'll ask a portfolio manager, why do you have a four basis point position in XYZ stock? You know, and then you want to make sure that that portfolio manager has a thesis in place for that really tiny position. Similarly, if I also screen on the holdings of, from a performance perspective, year to date, and if a, if a position has had a terrible performance, then you start asking the portfolio manager, when did you buy it? Did you buy it before the sell-off? Did you buy it during the sell-off? Did you buy it after the sell-off? If they said they bought it, um, they, they bought it before the sell-off, then you have to ask, well, are you buying more because the valuations are better? And if they say no, then why aren't you buying more if you love that position, if it's one of your bigger positions? So again, it's kind of asking a ton of questions about how to, um, you know, what, what's being done. Because again, you know, you can always read the pitch book and the pitch book gives you the basics, philosophy, process, performance, all that stuff. But you got to ask what's not, on the, what's not on the pitch book is very, very important. Did you, did you say so you didn't invest with them in the end? You thought this is too, this is too shady. This is no, no, no. I mean, there were other reasons too. Like, I mean, the other, the other, again, when, the, when the, the data will say something, but a lot of times as an analyst, you need to use your common sense. Like this, this portfolio back then, um, the numbers were outstanding, phenomenal numbers. And you look at the AUM, the AUM totally for this large growth portfolio was, um, I think it was about $20 million. So it was very surprising that it's not like we were the first person to discover this product. So again, it just, it just everything, it didn't smell right. Yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. This is this is cool, and I, I look. I, I think we've always we always sort of focused a lot on the. Actually, one more thing, just on 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 sort of PM mistakes. We discussed a little bit there. Um, sort of mistakes PMs make when they when they pitch and when they sort of you know in the due diligence process. Uh, this is maybe too tough a question, too broad. So if it is, you know, forgive me. But what about kind of common investment mistakes that you see managers make? Whether it's sort of you know they get. Uh, too successful and and they're not and they sort of take their eye off the ball or they get you know, they get too big and they're too big to be in some of the sort of smaller positions that they want to be in and things like that are there you know in your time analyzing funds are there, are there some are there some common uh prevalent errors that you see pms make um on the investment side of things away from the sort of the pitch and the due diligence process yeah i think i think sometimes you see um portfolio managers fall in love with ideas and they love an idea and they stick to it and they increase position and starts takes you know they're taking bigger risks in those positions so you see this a lot you see an, a portfolio manager who changes their style you know to all of a sudden you know take advantage of something they're seeing in the market um, so one way we look at that is that we'll look at a position and you know make sure it's consistent with their process and philosophy but also we look at the size of the position relative you know to the trading ability of that stock you know can they how long will it take them to get in and out of that stock um, so we look at some we always look at things to back up the data so again letting positions run too much too fast you know it's okay to let a winner run or run but if it changes you know you know the ramifications if it changes your sector positioning if it changes um, you know, just changes your your process. That's a big red flag. I think other mistakes is just you know you look at compensation. You know, um, 
We like to see short-term compensation targets and long-term compensation targets mixed together. I visited this firm back in probably like the early 2000s, um, right before the tech bubble. So yeah, it was probably late 99, early 2000. We visited a small cap growth firm in California and this firm had phenomenal numbers. And then everyone was buying this fund. It was a small cap growth doing very, very well. What worried us about this fund was that the portfolio manager made a statement and, and he said, our compensation is um, our long our compensation you know our bonus is tied to both to really just short term performance because you know our he basically said something to the fact that the advisors get judged on one year performance so we should get judged on one year performance so our entire bonus is based on how we did in that portfolio that year and for us that's a red flag because a there's no long term perspective of managing the fund but b let's say that the portfolio manager it's say it's November and they're underperforming their benchmark, what are they going to do? They're going to change that fund and they're going to boost beta in the portfolio as a way to potentially get that bonus. So we get a little leery about those types of compensation structures. So again, um, letting winners run, which is not normal to their process, or kind of, um, you know, you know comp short, too short-term focused compensation. And then also the, the third thing I would suggest, I would say is a mistake is that, um, you know, a lot of time, you know, like basically a portfolio manager saying that my strength is say bottom up security selection, but then you run the attribution, you run the analysis and it's completely the opposite. So again, not using their resources correctly. You know, a lot of times we'll ask a portfolio manager, I know you're a large growth manager at, at, at firm XYZ, but how are you compensated in terms of how the fixed income team does? You know, what type of compensation do you get based on if the fixed income funds do well? And the reason we ask those questions is just to get a better perspective of what is the culture like? Is it a very collaborative culture behind the scenes? Is it very much us, every, the firm trying to do well? Or is it people working in silos? And we tend to avoid the, the, that type of silo um, organization. Yeah, sort of everyone out for themselves, very short term, sort of. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I was also interested to know, because you, you, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but you touched on this there around kind of, you know, people falling in love with ideas, maybe, you know, positions becoming too concentrated in, in, um, in particular portfolios. And I think that we are, there's maybe some high profile funds at the moment where there's some debate around whether that's happening. Um, and I'm interested to know kind of what you think of the market at the moment then and, and, and um, you know, what do you think of, do, do you see some, I don't know, how am I going to phrase this? Do, do you see some bad errors, bad mistakes being made at the moment, whether that is, you know, these high profile funds, which are perhaps taking too bigger positions in, 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 in smaller, less liquid stocks? Do you see that with the rise of, you know, thematic investing that might be an issue? Um, obviously, over the last year, we've seen a lot of people um trading more aggressively than perhaps they did before and use of leverage and things and i'm just interested in your, your sort of wider view of the market what are some of the more what are some of the things that worry you i guess about some some investment uh trends uh currently yeah that, that's a great question so for us we um if you, if you take a step back and look at our themes for 2021 three themes you know in the markets and number one uh broadening economic recovery i mean you look at the data the data whether it's a consumer whether it's business side Data is getting much better. Things are going very, very, very well. And there's, you know, the vaccine, as we touched on earlier, the amount of stimulus and just basically, um, 
you know, things are going very, very well right now. Um, like the data is just great. The second theme, which goes into what you're talking about, is that we see little, some headwinds coming down the road. You know, you know, as we all know, the stock market prices in events about six to nine months in advance, and we see some key headwinds that are going to start to likely that could affect the market. You know, China is starting to remove its stimulus. Um, you look at inflation concerns. You also look at, um, you know, just just the uncertainty around some of the economic data and that the uncertainty around the economic data, you know, we are in a, seems like we're in a very front end loaded economic expansion right now. And because of this, a lot of the investors are assuming that the same economic growth will continue at a pretty wide clip. And we do believe that some of those are some of the, this is causing investors to be a little bit aggressive. This is causing valuations to jump dramatically. This is why you're seeing a new bubble created every single day. You know, whether it's cryptocurrency, whether it's SPACs, whether it's those retail still, retail trading stocks we talked about earlier, which is causing creating this sort of uncertainty in the market. Um, even you look at you look at a lot of institutional investors, and they're starting to sort of de-risk a little bit. They're starting to you know reduce some of the some you know making some you know some anti-volatility bets basically in their portfolios. And that's our third theme: just an increasing shift of volatility. So we just think volatility is going to be high, especially with valuations, and especially with you know these headwinds facing us. So with all that said, you know some of the risks that we see. Again, I alluded to some of them earlier, whether it's crypto, whether it's SPACs, but we also see like. A lot of concentrations in very small positions. You know, I think um, you know there's some well-known ETF. You know, there's you know uh, the Kathy Woods portfolios. Yeah, Kathy Wood. I met her a few times. Great, very very smart investor. Great investment ideas. You know, you know I remember her back at Alliance Bernstein. Great, you know, great investment ideas back then. What concerns us is just that there's so much money, so much inflows in those in her suite of products, chasing such very few names. And then and I think she raised some of our guidelines in terms of what she can buy into certain positions. I think she took them all off. There's no there's no caps, I think. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah she's cap-free now. And, you know, there's no cap. And now you start looking at some of the top holdings and you start to subtract out, you know, this number of shares she owns, how long it takes her to get out of those positions. You know, we estimated for some of the positions, it's like, you know, 15 trading days, 10 to 15 trading days based on the liquidity. So those things, you know, can worry us. You know, you know, you look at like a year like 99 and everything was going great, but then you have a slowdown, you have this, the uncertainties around 2000, 2001, 2002, when things are going the wrong way, it creates unexpected consequences. So, you know, we're watching things like that where there's too much money chasing too small investments. You get these tiny stocks that that everyone focuses on, and they're you know operating in fairly fairly small pools, and and ETS pile in, the fund managers pile in. Everyone is going towards what is tiny company ends up pushing the share price up, like you spoke about earlier, where you know a position becomes too big because you run with it for too long, and actually it's a tiny company, and possibly you shouldn't have such a large stake in it. Uh, there's no question in there; it's just a statement. <laughs> Good. We'll, we'll cut that out. Um, no, no, we'll keep it in. Um, okay, cool. Well, Jean, I, I, I'm conscious of time, but I, I feel that we, we, we always offer our guests the opportunity. You know, having having asked them to confess to to their mistakes and and, and sort of pour over how things have gone wrong, uh, we offer them the opportunity to, to to brag as well to to sort of say, "Hang on, actually, this was a call I made." Right now, you actually, in true American style, started bragging pretty early. Uh, in the podcast by by telling us about you know your your, your timing back into value and then the sort of reopening 
trade. But um, so maybe it's that. Maybe there's something else. But are there any sort of you know great investment calls that also spring to mind that you know you also you know have also equally marked your career uh, that, that you wanted to share with us? Yeah, and, and then going back to the value trade. I mean, obviously, I, I said we did. It's my team. It's not. It's not me. So my team does all the work. I basically good rescue. Good rescue there. So, you know, make make it humble again. Well done. Yeah. yeah. They basically tell me what to do. No, but you know, I think when we saw a thirty four percent sell off back in February to March, that was a great way to boost beta with our portfolio. So we went in and. Last March, we went in, we reduced our alternatives exposure, we increased emerging markets, and then April, given the you know optimism around the Fed and the quantitative easing, we went in and boosted our positions and credit, um, you know, in our portfolios, add more to mid cap. So, you know, the team. One thing I love about my team, my team really, it's a diverse group of ten people that we just go in there and you know we have great ideas and great different perspectives. So, you know, these are great investment ideas. I think me personally, I think one of the my favorite moments was like it was a, I think it was it was early March when the when I was on TV and I said, listen, the Fed is going to surprise the markets and cut rates, you know, by fifty basis points. And I think you know the announcers there kind of laughed at me and no, oh, that's not going to happen. And then the Fed did it about an hour later. And you know, I'm not the Fed whisperer. Or anything. I was gonna say, you got some inside information you want to talk to the SEC about that? <laughs> yeah, you know, Jay Powell called me. He's like, "Hey, heads up, heads up, Gene." Yeah. Hey, like, hey, Gene, mate. Yeah. It was more. It was more. It was more of a, a, a like a, a message on on Friendster, and um, you know, it was a message. Something. I'm just kidding, but um, so you know, that kind of you know that you know that was sort of my investment, like you know, decision that I, that I had said. So it was one of my good things, I, I guess. Well, that was our interview with Gene Goldman from Cetera. So thank you, Gene. And Frank, yeah, look, I thought there were a number of interesting things to come from that, um, whether it was the FOMO, whether it was the sort of received wisdom about the right time to drop managers, whether it was, you know, asking lots of questions. What, what stood out to you in particular? Yeah, I think it's that last point, you know, continuing to ask a lot of questions. I imagine when Gene and his crew rock up to these fund houses, they're not particularly happy to see him. He'll just he'll just pester you until you potentially make make a mistake. I think you can revere fund managers too much, but ultimately they're just human, and therefore you know the same foibles and mistakes as the rest of us uh, they can make. And uh, it's about not necessarily rattling them, but life isn't always a flat track, and there are inevitable issues that crop up. I know in the last decade it's seemed pretty flat for particularly equity managers, apart from the wobble we had last year. But fund managers, they like a script. And uh, you and I know that, and particularly the media-savvy US managers. Yeah, and I, I thought that was a really good point that he sort of raised about kind of really picking through those holdings, you know, managers, perhaps. You've probably had this. I've definitely had this when you, as a journalist, they, they like to paint this picture around the, the process and the philosophy. But actually, you know, what it, if it's an equity manager, it is stocks. So, you know, let's talk about those. And it's interesting how, you know, Gene thinks that's the route into into understanding what's really going on. Yeah, because if he can find a position that, that doesn't stack up with with the process that will have been explained by that point, then that's that's a, that's a red flag, and there might be a perfectly valid reason for it. But you know, if I think if Gene's going to hand over a big ticket, then he he like he likes to feel confident. I mean, you and I hand over much smaller tickets. I like to be confident that my one thousand pounds is doing is doing work somewhere else, while his billion is. It's doing a lot better elsewhere. That's, well, it's someone else's billions, just uh, you know, on his behalf, I suppose. Yeah, I, I thought as well. Um, I mentioned this in the introduction as well, but th- this idea of when to drop a manager, and Gene talked about it right at the beginning there, sort of 
the the I think it's a fairly widely received wisdom. You know, a high profile manager leaves, and you look, you see it. High profile manager leaves. Flows tend to go with them. There's loads of examples of that that we can all um, reference. But actually, that's not always the right decision. And I guess maybe it's the braver decision to stay with the fund. Oh, yes, unquestionably the braver decision, particularly when you're fighting the, the perceived or is it received wisdom that, the, the, you know, the, the accepted way of doing things and being bold enough to go with your convictions uh, over what you've been necessarily instructed to do or people think is the right thing to do. I think some of our other guests have touched on this, you know, go, going with your conviction. I can't remember which guests, sorry, guests. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's a definite commonality. And the one other thing he mentioned, actually, it comes back to the way he treats these meetings with these portfolio managers like like a job interview. I'd never really thought about it. You're actually hiring the services of that individual to run the money. Obviously, you are, but you're basically giving them a job. I mean, if it's a large enough pool of assets that's going over there, then you you need to think about, okay, what what annoying interview questions can I ask? Yeah, I, I suppose lastly, I just think while we're referencing previous previous podcasts uh, in an incredibly navel-gazing style that we do, um, I reference episode one with uh, Daniel Crosby, who sort of, you know, poo-pooed the benefits of on-site due diligence. And I thought Gene had a very good counter to that with those stories of sort of visiting visiting shops all suspiciously around the Philadelphia area where there were either not as many people working as uh, as perhaps they had suggested or, or various other uh, weird idiosyncrasies that, that he wouldn't have discovered had he not seen them. So I thought that was a good a good riposte to the uh, to the idea that the the on-site meetings aren't perhaps all they're cracked up to be and this is something you you know about the weird and wonderful things you can spot when when visiting managers too uh yeah absolutely well on that note it is goodbye from me alex steger and goodbye from me frank talbot <laughs>